Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Lisa Deus, the liaison director for women's soccer on the Big C Society board of directors, and our special guest today, Courtney Heldreth, whose maiden name was Courtney Hooker of Cal women's soccer and more recently, Google. For some context, here's a quick background on Courtney. She came to Cal in 2004 and in her freshman year started all 20 games with her ferocious defensive play, earning her all Pac-10 honors. After four years of striking fear into the hearts of opposing teams and setting multiple defensive records, Courtney was recognized as one of the best defenders in the country. She was also team captain and she earned her degrees in psychology and biology. Such a slacker. Now, Lisa, I know you and Courtney were teammates for a year or two. Is there anything that you want to add that's going to make Courtney blush even more? <laughs> um, yeah. Hi, Hooker. Hi. <laughs> Larry, so, my favorite. <laughs> so I was a striker and played opposite of Hooker on defense, obviously. And I just remember being terrified every practice at the prospect of being matched up against her in any sort of offense-defense drill. She was like this fierce, pouncing octopus. She'd like strip you from the ball as fast as you got it. And you'd usually end up on the ground eating mud. Um, and off the field, she actually brought those same pouncing sensibilities to Sproul Plaza for some sweet free swipes at the GVC. Always getting those yeah. Dutch crunch sandwiches. Um, but I mean, she'd come out of nowhere, you know, in both instances. Mm. But yeah, back to the field. As a forward, she would just make you look bad every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> Wow, what a what a high praise from such an excellent forward too. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, Courtney, we're so excited for you to be here today and we're going to jump in to how you got into this career. So, can you tell me the story of how you came to your job as a user experience researcher at Facebook and start as far back as you would like to and please don't spare me any details. I want to know the sure. skills you had to develop, the <laughs> degrees required, networking you did. Please share everything. Yeah, so my path was not as linear as many might think. So uh, when I was at Cal, I was started off as a biology major um, and, you know, as part of the breadth requirements, ended up taking my first psychology course. And I remember uh, when I went into the psychology course in those big auditoriums, there was this wonderful professor who stood on stage and taught the entire uh, content through magic tricks. 
And I sat there and I thought, wow, I'm really miserable taking these biology courses. But here's this guy. He's up there having the time of his life teaching concepts that feel really sort of like innately human and something that I could really grasp and something that's really interesting learning about human behavior. So that's when I made the bold decision to double minor uh, while taking, you know, while being a student athlete. Um, Sorry, double major while being a student athlete. Um, and so I ended up taking a bunch of psychology courses and joining a couple labs as an undergraduate uh, research assistant. So I joined Serena Chen's lab, who studies a lot of uh, intergroup relationships. And I also joined uh, a lab with Bill Prince Metal, who does a lot of sort of like brain neuro behavior, uh, really low level uh, stuff. Um, and so after grad school, I, like many people who graduate, was like, what am I going to do with my life? Well, I seem to be really good at this school stuff. Um, so and I was really passionate about this intersection between health and psychology and biology um, and where I live was L.A. So uh, I went back to live at home, as many of us do after we graduate with my parents in L.A. And I joined uh, a health psychology lab at UCLA um, on a. I was a lab manager for a project um, that was a longitudinal study looking at the effects of what we call allostatic load. So this is sort of cumulative stress um, on low income couples um, and uh, how that affects birth weight. Um, and so I did that for two years and then decided, hey, I'm going to take the dive and and go and get a Ph.D. in social psychology. Um, so I did that. And in grad school, I studied how racism um, affects mental and physical health. So my intersection, again, my health background came in. Uh, I studied things like how um experiences of racism can make your cortisol jump or it increases cellular aging um, as well as affect well-being. So uh, I did that for five years. Uh, and then when I graduated, um, believe it or not, I was grossly unqualified for the professional world. So when you come out of these programs and, and what they're training you to be in a PhD is to be, you know, a, re- a researcher, a professor. Right. Um, but what they don't tell you along the way is that there are very few Uh, jobs in between. um, And they're all very, very competitive. So I was lined up to get a postdoc, um, but quickly sort of realized after I graduated, you know, um, this postdoc at Stanford, it's really great, but I think uh, I really want to do something that's more applied where I could see kind of my research reach a lot of people. Um, to that to that extent, I applied to Facebook and Google. All of them rejected me. Um, and so what do you do when you don't get a job? You move to Texas. <laughs> so that's what my husband <laughs> and I did after grad school. We packed our bags. He's a CPA. He could get a job anywhere. Uh, we moved to Austin, Texas. I've always wanted to live in the South and um, really love Austin. I've always been a really big fan of Austin. Um, so we so I moved there and I did survey research at a company um, that does basically like a lot of consulting for hedge funds um, and uh, a, a bunch of businesses. And I ran their survey research. And while I was there, I had a couple of friends that worked at Facebook, uh, just begged them to please just submit my application and apply because we'll talk about this in a little bit, but networks are really important for people who are interested in getting into big tech. Um, so I was referred, went through the process, got a job at Facebook and landed that there where I worked for three years on a growth team for the business platform. Um, And in that work, I did a lot of work in what we call the global South. So this is Latin America, um, you know, uh, Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa were kind of like the main areas of my focus. Um, And I was really interested in understanding how do we make sure that um, people in these areas are, are able to connect with their customers in a really meaningful way. And more specifically, 
given my sort of PhD interest, I was interested in how do we get women? Um, so these like small entrepreneurial businesses that are ran by women in places like India, how do we make sure that they have a powerful voice and presence on Facebook? Um, and when you start to kind of look into those cultures, what you soon learn is um, you can't just focus on the tech, right? Um, you know, we tend to think and develop products with a very sort of Western focus, right? It's called um, homophily, right? We we design and think about systems the way that we interact and engage with them, but it's, it's very different in the developing world. Um, and so you need to really understand people's daily realities or challenges and needs and figure out if technology has a place in those daily realities. Um, and so that was like a lot of my work doing a lot of ethnographies, um, you know, talking to, to people on the ground, sort of really learning about their, their experiences and their challenges, and then identifying that unique sort of needle in the haystack of, of where we could actually make a difference. Um, and then after that, uh, I was recruited by, by Google to, to take on a new challenge, which was artificial intelligence with a team called the People in AI Research. Um, so this team works horizontally, our team AI UX. So there's a lot of acronyms. UX stands for user experience. AI stands for artificial intelligence. Um, so our team works horizontally um, across sort of uh, Google research, used to be Google research and machine intelligence. And we bring a very sort of human first approach to Google advanced R&D projects. Um, so we, again, really focus on how do we make sure humans are in the loop when all of these really fantastic advances are, are happening in AI. In AI. Um, I lead a team that is focused on identifying the risk and opportunities of artificial intelligence for our users in the global south. Um, and I do a lot of work looking at this intersection of you know, marginalized and underserved communities and what are kind of their unique technology needs and how do we make sure that we we pay, we wed that picture and marry that picture in a way that is responsible, that's ethical, but also keeps our users best interest and heart from those markets that we often don't hear about a lot. So that's what I've, I've been pretty much focusing on for the last about two years at Google. Um, my team is very diverse. Um, so I uh, have a report in Accra, Ghana. She's the only uh, user experience researcher on the African continent, which we're really proud of. Um, and I work with just a bunch of different people around the world, from engineers to product managers to marketing, um, really trying to figure out how do we build more inclusive projects for our next billion users. Wow. What a fantastic journey. Absolutely amazing. You know, something that I'm really curious about that just comes up to me is it seems like you've been very driven, very convicted along this career path. You know, you said making the move to Texas and going to get your PhD. Those are big things. Those are big sacrifices. It requires a real core internal drive. What is your core internal drive yeah. um, in your career? Yeah. Um, my sort of core internal drive, and I, th I think it's something that I've always kept with me, even through soccer, um, is I'm really trying to understand these disparities that exist in technology and and lift people up as much as possible. Um, I, I treat my my entire sort of work as a way to um, create more empathy um, in the world, but also just um, really making sure that the ethos of our work 
aligns with my mission, which is, you know, we need to do right by the people. Um, and we, in order to do that, we need to take a very socio-technical approach to the problems that we solve. Um, and so that. That drive definitely comes from soccer when we played. Um, you know, I think uh, Larry could definitely attest to this is I was probably like the most passionate uh, and competitive player out there. I, I mm-hmm. hated to lose and I have a will to get things done. Um, and that certainly helps me be very effective and impactful. Um, and also, you know, um, oftentimes we're looking at communities that are neglected. And so you have to bring their voices to the forefront. Um, and that requires a certain level of leadership and ability to, to um, you know, potentially show people that this is an area that maybe is under studied or we haven't been looking at, but look at this, look at this incredible social opportunity, look at this business opportunity, look at this interesting scientific challenge, and how do we get the right people in the room to focus on this problem holistically? Hmm. I'm curious. Um, oh, Joe, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. I, I uh, <clears throat> was, Courtney, I was taken by this description of like, what is it like for one of Google's users to step outside their door? What is like their life like, as opposed to like, what is, what is our life like? And um, I'm just interested, uh, you know, you hear a lot in the Silicon Valley about, uh, you know, these sorts of biases that sort of creep into technology and what risks are there uh, you know, do, that you see like with regard to AI, which is sort of algorithmically drawing up data uh, yeah. that may implicitly be biased. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, so we often talk about what we call machine learning fairness, right? So when we look at any machine learning model, what we know is that the data is sort of the foundation of all of the algorithms that we create. Um, but data is driven by people, right? People contribute data, lots of data to be exact. And that data then is creates basically these these models and we, we train these models on, on data. Um, and what we know about people are that people are inherently biased. And so the stereotypes and prejudices and discrimination and things that exist in our society often end up in the data. And unfortunately, that leads to not so great outcomes. So, for example, um, Amazon recently uh, launched a hiring tool. And this is this is public. This is in the news. Um, And as they were starting to use it, they noticed that um, hiring the hiring tool was mimicking some of the structural inequalities that exist in hiring against women. Right. Um, And so they had to pull that very quickly out of their out of their skill set. We also know that things like image search. So when you used to be able to search for a scientist, what do you think came up the most when you would search for that image? A bunch of men, a bunch of older white men. Right. But we know that there's a lot of diverse people in science. I'm one of them. Right. Um, And so, you know, when we're looking at this context and how it influences folks in the developing world, you can see, again, a lot of systematic inequalities, a lot of prejudice and bias also seep into the machine learning process and therefore um, produce outcomes that that are less desirable. I think also one thing to note is, you know, with the advancement of surveillance technologies in many of these countries, mostly from Chinese businesses that are coming to Africa and introducing them, there's an absence of data protection laws in places like sub-Saharan, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and they certainly don't have an AI strategy that 
accounts for the ways that some of these companies are leveraging data. So it, it brings down to the question of, you know, who is responsible for the data, who has access to it, and how is that data being used? And in the absence of really strict data protection policies, you can see these systems being introduced and potentially um, creating you know, bad situations for many people. And so we have a whole team at Google, um, which I work with very closely called Ethical AI. Um, we we try to really sort of um, understand um, how do we think about fairness and the models that we create? How do we make sure that the work that we're doing and the products that we're launching are responsible? Um, where, what are our checks and balances to ensure that we're not reinforcing some of these structural problems that we know exist? So, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a reflection. The data are a reflection of us. And unfortunately, as we know, there, we're not perfect. And there are many things that we've had, um, you know, that we've seen in the real world that are are not great for people from marginalized groups. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is interesting work. I'm going to have to connect you with my uh, wife, Julie, who <clears throat> for the record is also a soccer player. Uh, she Yay! played at TCU, but she's, uh, she's very interested awesome. in this. Yeah. It was, we can take that offline. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to. I'm, I'm always, um, happy to also like share. I'm, I work a lot on uh, racial equity at Google as well. And we're doing a lot of, uh, projects to make sure that our black users voices are incorporated in the product development cycle from the fruition of, Hey, is this a good idea? Should we build this all the way through product launch? How do we make sure that those perspectives are included? Because, you know, if you look at the demographics at big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon, um, unfortunately they do not reflect the diversity of the world, right? Um, we're seeing not a lot of racial minorities, LGBT is underrepresented first generation, um, so we know we have a lot of work to do and we can't have, we can't build these products in silos, right? We can't, we, we would do a disservice to our global user base to say, we know what works best for you, um, because we work at Google, right? Especially if the demographic of, of Google, uh, has a way to go in terms of reflecting the diversity of the world. So lots of like really, um, important work that, that is being done right now. And, um, I'm happy that I, I get to just be a, a voice in the room. Super cool. Courtney, can you describe, can you describe what the day to day of your life is like? Just paint us a picture of what Tuesday is and don't spare any details. We want to know when you get to work, <laughs> when you leave work, what's, you know, what's the culture, yeah. what are your work responsibilities? Can you paint that picture for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I can I can talk to you a little bit about what I did today. So as I mentioned, all of my work is is international, um, mostly in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa right now. Um, so my meeting schedules are pretty crazy. So today I had a meeting at 7 a.m. with my uh, with some of my teammates in India to talk about a project that we're working on, which is looking at how do we use machine learning to help small local farmers in the global south. Um, so we're doing a lot of sort of like farm Centered AI uh, work, which is which is really uh, exciting, and I'm happy to share a Medium article that's externally um, has been externally released on that, as well as a project that we're doing with the X team, which is kind of like the secret moonshot team at um, at Google, who's working on a computational agriculture project. So um, there's oftentimes a lot of meetings and and uh, busy work there, um, and then um, I lead an inclusive culture effort for the diversity, equity 
and inclusion um, team at Google um, and in Google Research. So we just hosted a wonderful talk with Dr. Lawrence Fung, who talked about the importance of neurodiversity. So he has um, a teenager who has ASD, autism spectrum disorder, um, and we talked about how do we, you know, leverage the the um, talents um, and the the um, intellect of those individuals uh, in, you know, in, into our, in our, to our culture and make sure that they're supported. Um, so that was great. Uh, and then I'm working on a couple of projects I can't disclose here, but lots and lots of my, my schedule is unfortunately, many of us are probably feeling this, especially now a ton of uh, video chat meetings. I try to have a break just to get some water and to try to do some focused work. Um, but for the rest of the day, it will pretty much be just back to back meetings, um, talking about, you know, our projects where they're at, um, as well as uh, I will, I'm a mentor as well. So I'll do some mentorship as well with, um, some of my reports, um, and some career conversations. Um, and then, yeah, I try to like, because I work so early, I try to end at a reasonable hour. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much my day. And at the end of the day, that's my time to actually start work because there's so many meetings in this new world that we call <laughs> GBC and, uh, COVID. So yeah, at the end of the day, I find myself sort of fatigued from looking at the screen, but push through to get that last research report out or, you know, close out some of my studies and, and start to wrap a bow on some of the work that I'm doing. Are there any uh, <clears throat> software tools in addition, obviously, to G Suite uh, that you use that are indispensable to you to, to do this sort of distributed workforce, you know, science? Yeah, definitely. Um, so goodness, the amount of tools that have even surfaced since um, everybody shifted to video calls has, has been really remarkable. I think in my particular role, um, so I'm a quantitative and qualitative psychologist. So quantitative is more sort of like data analysis, um, you know, survey execution and analysis. So more on the number side where qualitative takes that more ethnographic approach of talking to people. Of course, that is a methodology in and of itself. You have to analyze, you know, the recordings. You need to um, be able to, um, you know, write up reports and generate themes and all of that great stuff. Um, so the tools that I use are really in that wheelhouse. I use um, a statistical software by uh, IBM called SPSS um, that helps you for me just analyze um, my data really efficiently. Um, we also like just work with a lot of vendors that have their own internal tools. So I'm working with uh, a company that does a lot of like diary analysis. So we just ran a really big diary study, which I'm really excited about. Um, so I'm in the process of like going through video clips and analyzing those data too. Um, but yeah, in terms of tools, really G Suite, <laughs> G Suite is where we are, we, where we are at. Um, when I was working at Facebook, I used a lot of keynote as well. Um, for those who, are obviously more um, interested in coding, like there are friends who are doing TensorFlow and Colab and R and JavaScript, um, but those are more engineering focused where I'm more on the, the user side. Got it. And did you have, um, was uh, was the PhD a requirement for this job? Can you talk to us about the interview at all? Yeah. Like, like you can yeah. cycle back to Facebook, uh, you know, after... You know, you built it sounds, it sounds like you did some networking uh, either during or after your time at GLG and then uh, moving into Facebook. And then but talk about the interview process, like how if somebody were interested yeah. 
in a user experience, like an entry level user experience job. Yours wasn't, but um, you know, how would you kind of prep for that? Yeah. And what, what, what would you expect to see in a candidate if you were going to be doing the hiring now and, and so forth? Because we're trying to give our, like if you were a student athlete now, essentially, how would you ladder into this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we all know, large tech is competitive. Um, so our acceptance rate this year for user experience researchers at a beginning role, I think, was around less than 10 percent, um, probably in the single digits, definitely in the single digits. Um, that's not to scare. That's just to say that um, it is competitive. And so you want to make sure that, you know, you're getting enough experience and um, you have the right sort of toolkit to be able to be competitive. Um, so what does that education and toolkit look like? Um, many of you are, are graduating and getting your BA. Um, I highly recommend you explore um, master's programs in what we call human computer interaction or HCI. Um, there is a fantastically competitive um, program at the Stanford. We call it the Stanford D School, Stanford Design School. I know Stanford boo, but there <laughs> they have um, a very incredible uh, HCI program. Um, what's interesting about HCI is that I'm talking a lot about user experience researchers, which is limiting in scope. Um, UX consists of many roles, including, you know, visual design, industrial design. Um, we have UX prototypers. Um, so it, it spans it's it's spans a bunch of different sort of roles. And what's nice about those master programs is that you get to sort of um, get, get your feet wet across a bunch of those, those different roles. So highly recommend, um, UW University of Washington also has a really great uh, HCI program that many Googlers have graduated from and have been very successful in. Um, the other path, which is the twisty windy path that I did, which is, um, you can go back and get your PhD in, um, an area that's in social science. So we have folks in information technology. We have, there's PhDs in human computer interaction. I received my PhD in social psychology. You want to sort of get, um, you know, really explore, um, opportunities to focus on human behavior. And if you could link it to technology, that would be great. Um, and um, to that extent, once you start getting into master's and PhD programs, um, what's really great is then you become um, eligible for a potential internship. Um, and internships are really fantastic at Google and at Facebook and at all of these tech companies. Um, they have summer ones. They also have intern. Um, they also have winter ones. Um, even though COVID has, has hit us, I know that we we are still having intern um, classes come through. Those cohorts are smaller, um, but there are still um, we still have those programs available. And what's really nice is that you get to basically um, get experience in a team, really understand how industry works. It's very different from academia. Um, it's much faster pace which is a surprise for many people. You know, when I did my dissertation, it took me five years. So I got to think about one problem for three years and develop like, a, you know, a lot of expertise in that space. Um, and with tech, it just moves much, much faster, which is really amenable to student athletes out there. Because one thing that I've um, really leaned into in my career is multitasking because you're, it's, you're not just working on one project. You're working with multiple projects, with multiple people. You, 
you know, have full autonomy and agency over those projects. Um, and you have to have the ability um, in a lot of the a lot of the time to be able to sort of like code switch and and, and quickly shift gears um, and dive deeply into topics. So um, definitely be ready for like a faster pace from that transition from academia to um, to industry. But I think when we look at the people who are getting those offers, um, they are people who have that industry experience. Um, and I think, you know, getting internships, identifying people uh, at these companies who, you know, go on LinkedIn. And if you see someone who has um, a role that's really interesting to you, reach out to them. You know, not everybody will reply, but I think um, many of us do um, and learn about what they do. Uh, that's your first networking opportunity that you get for free, right? You don't have to go back to school. You don't have to do anything. You just have to send an email. So highly recommend uh, that those are kind of the starting places I would put people. Courtney, I want to shift the conversation over to some intangibles and specifically the intangible benefits of tens of thousands of hours that you invested as an athlete, um, specifically at Cal, you know, running, training, competing, running, more running. <laughs> um, our, our audience is very interested in whether the sensibilities you developed as an athlete are transferable to your post-sports career. So I'm going to turn it over to Lisa actually to take over this mm -hmm. section and ask questions. Yeah, yeah that so, sounds great. Yeah, so Hooker, you just kind of touched on your multitasking abilities um, and how that came from being an athlete. But we hear a lot about the advantages embedded in the mindset of former athletes at work. So Stanford professor Carol Dweck has written about it, for example, yeah, I love along with other disciplines that supposedly give former athletes an edge in the workforce. First, do you think that's truth or hype? And if you think it's true, do you feel like you have any soccer related superpowers from your days on the yeah. pitch that give you an edge at Google? Yeah, I would like to believe it's true. Um, as a scientist, I would like to see the empirical data to prove it to be true. But if Carol Dweck is saying it, who is a fantastic uh, researcher, I believe I believe that she's done she's done the research. So, yes, yes, it's true. Um, uh, so, so some of the attributes that I think that carry over from, um, gosh, I, it's hard to actually think about what doesn't carry over. Um, so, so I already talked a little bit about multitasking, um, but the fact that um, I felt like as a student athlete, my time was so limited. And so the time that I spent on my on my academic studies was super concentrated and hyper focused because you don't have time to slack off. Um, you don't have time to, you know, uh, you know, sort of like do that meandering path because there's already an entire commitment of soccer or your sport um, that sort of holds you accountable. Um, and I, I feel like um, now people say like, you are one of the most efficient people ever. Like if you give me an hour, I could produce a lot because I'm used to just with the limited amount of time that I have just being as productive as possible. And this is something that is so um, lucrative in the workplace, especially now that we're not getting as much social interaction. If you could do that without being pushed um, and with full autonomy, which we have to do as soccer players, then I think that 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 is uh, certainly an advantage. Um, a couple of other things. Um, one is just leadership, right? Even if you weren't the, the captain of your team, um, you led on the field, right? Um, and you had to show up for people when they didn't want to show up for themselves. And these are the attributes that I think make really good people, but also really good managers as well. Um, your ability to lead um, and, and lead in a way where you're 
you're also bringing in people from diverse perspectives, um, sometimes from all over the country, sometimes from all over the world into this really unique space, which is sports and making sure that we're all working together and we're operating and we're functioning to a super high level at a super high level um, is something that I do every day with the teams, right? Because I am now on a, on a team at Google. It's just a different team, right? I, I really do wish that I had more Cal Bears uh, on my on my team but the the they're a little bit less athletic on my now professional team um, but certainly um, different personalities different backgrounds different expertise right and your job is to figure out how do you maximize um, the secret sauce of each of these people what are their superpowers and how do you amplify them right because collectively if everybody is working to their you know max ability um, you have a really good outcome and a really good product, right? And so, and so that certainly um, carries over as well. Um, and yeah, I think I think those pretty much cover it. I'm sure that there there's many more, um, but yeah, those are the ones that really stand out to me, and especially in my work because I spend, except for this, is obviously the exception of this year. Most of my time is spent um, in countries in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia where I don't speak the language. I am new. I am oftentimes like seen as someone who is from the outside coming in. Um, I think that just, you know, being a part of a student athlete community, you just get introduced to so many different people and the social skills and the um, empathy that you have towards your teammates and towards others. You really cultivate that. Um, I really felt like I cultivated that and learned a lot about who I am as a person at Cal. And that has helped me come into these really oftentimes stressful environments. Like to give you an example, I received, I got horrible food poisoning when we were in Nigeria last year, like terrible food poisoning. But the next day I had to go into this village and run a bunch of studies. And I was, it was hot, but I was also sweating profusely and I was so sick but I also just didn't show it because I just I just learned grit and to toughen up and it's going to be OK. And I'm here. I'm present. And the community just responded so positively. They brought me Gatorade. There were ladies fanning me down. It was really sweet. <laughs> like you learned how to adapt in situations that, um, you know, you maybe you didn't think you could do. And I think that's it. that's it, too, that I wanted to mention is like that grit. Right. Grit is something that we don't talk about very often. It's sort of like that combination of resilience and hard work and perseverance. And those are attributes that you learn as a student athlete that are super um, important when you're when you're in this this type of work in particular. Yeah. You also Sweating. touched on yeah. <laughs> and continuing to work, feeling uncomfortable yeah. at Google. These are things exactly. that people normally don't hear about Google. We always hear about how yeah. comfortable it is there. <laughs> travel a lot like like I do but yeah there are some people who are in the comfier jobs I I oftentimes lean into discomfort that's that's kind of what I like to do but yeah you you do you do experience highs and lows at any company like you have to be resilient right I mean you're not gonna you're not gonna have a perfect season you're not gonna win every game you're not gonna show up to every game playing your best um, you have to sort of show yourself grace in those moments and move quickly to the next thing. And that's exactly what you do 
at these companies, right? Like sometimes the project doesn't land. Sometimes you lose budget. It's okay. <laughs> like you've got to be resilient, right? You've got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. You also talked about um, being a lifelong competitor, which I certainly saw on the field. You were yes. the most competitive person I think I've ever played with. How do you think that's translated into um, your roles at Facebook, Google, et cetera? Um, yeah. So I think my competitiveness certainly in college was a little bit more um, raw and rugged. I think that I had this like, if you don't play to the level that I expect you to play with, then get out of my face sort of deal. Um, but now I think that I understand that, that everyone is so different and unique and sometimes people have off days and you have to also be gracious and appreciative of them just showing up. Um, so I think that that like is the change in my competitive competitiveness. Um, but I do think, yeah, like in terms of competitive, like, I, I hold my, it's not necessarily competitive between individuals, um, but I think I'm more trying to push my limits of what I can do. So every sort of like research deliverable that I share with my teams, um, every project that I, that I kind of take on, I'm sort of thinking like, how do I 10 X this or do, you know, five times better than I did last time. Um, and I think the ability to take feedback, which is like something that most people who haven't played sports haven't gotten that direct like criticism, right? On the field and off the field, like you need to do this, you didn't do this. I mean, that was that's part of being a student athlete is is criticism, receiving criticism and taking that feedback. Um, and I feel like I really um, like that is that's like the fuel that that allows me to remain competitive with myself is that I really lean into that and I use that to sort of amplify my work and take it to the next level. So, um, yeah. Can we return to the subject just for a minute? Uh, this is going to be a, a, a connection between a number of things you said, but return to the subject of leadership. Yeah. Like, first of all, I'm interested in what that means to you. And I want, if you can draw a contrast between, you know, the if you're not playing to my level, get out of my face. You that was, you know, playing soccer, you know, all the way forward to the now probably, you know, if this is sort of arguable, but like empathy is one of the most important words in user experience research and in good products. Uh, you know, products that are designed for your users, as it were. Yeah. So, and, and it's also really important in, in leadership, to your point, uh, in companies and organizations, because people are so different. So, yeah. you know, talk to me about like how you experienced leadership as a student athlete, what you thought it meant then, and maybe what you think, what, what it means to you now. Yeah. Well, as a student athlete, um, you know, I looked up to so many people on our team. Um, I mean, I've had the privilege of playing with Tracy Ham, um, who is just, if you've ever talked to, spoken to Tracy, she's just a, an incredible athlete and a really, a really fantastic leader. Um, and to me, um, leadership has always sort of been, you know, uncovering what your what your teammates' unique strengths, what their superpowers are, and figuring out how do you get that the most often, right? Um, and so I think when I was a student athlete, I just expected 
that to be all the time, right? Everybody should be playing their best all the time and there's no off days and let's go, let's go, let's go. Right. Um, and you know, I think also there were a couple of transitions when we were at Cal between, you know, losing a, a coach who had been there for a really long time, transitioning to a new coach. So, so there were, um, a lot of the leadership that I think I saw was just trying to kind of calm, <laughs> calm people, <laughs> make sure everybody's okay. Um, it felt very sort of, um, you know, it didn't feel proactive um, at all. It, it felt very like reactive. Um, now I, I sort of see a lot of my leadership as proactive. So, you know, I'll start to see sort of issues really early on. Um, and those aren't issues to be ignored. I think having really open dialogue and, and first of all, dialogue um, between sort of managers and other people cannot happen if there's not trust. Um, so I think that um, part of being a leadership is figuring out how do you um, create trust with people from different cultures who come from different backgrounds. Um, so that's kind of my my first uh, like way that I get, that I feel like I'm leading effectively. Um, the second is empathy. We talk about that word a lot. Um, to me, like every good leader that I've that I've had has been empathetic. Um, and empathy doesn't just necessarily, uh, mean you listen and you're all good. Um, empathy means that you can walk in that person's shoes and understand that if they're showing up today this way, that it's something real and, and that's, and that's okay too. Um, and then the final thing, um, that I'll mention is, um, yeah, just, I think, you know, leaders, there's not everybody could be a good leader. And I think that's okay too. We need people to be, to play these supporting roles. And, and I don't mean to diminish, um, the, that, but, um, I do think that there are some people who are able to look at big picture problems really quickly, diagnose what to do, and then figure out who they need to be involved to fix that problem and that issue. Um, I like to think that I could do that pretty effectively. Although, you know, who knows? Maybe my manager is watching this. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I, I think that like just having that sort of big picture mindset, like these, especially you know, when fires happen, it could feel like very urgent and very immediate. But trying to like exhibit calm and say, okay, perhaps this is happening at this moment, but what, what further down the line do we need to, to look out for? So that sort of forward thinking mentality, I think also makes a really good lead. And, you know, uh, just for all the viewers who are watching to the extent you're interested in Facebook or Google, uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong here, is there's actually a pretty nice pathway for uh, individual contributors and managers in the banding. Uh, so yeah. you can actually pretty make a pretty good living as a, as a super expert some as something yeah. as an individual contributor. Um, isn't that, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we have sort of like two bands as you identified, um, individual uh, contributor, which is called an IC. Uh, these are people who are really great at getting into the weeds of the work and just want to sort of like focus their expertise to solve, you know, 
specific problems. Um, and then we have uh, the, the manager role, which, um, you know, it's people who are just really great at um, bringing up the people below them and surfacing their work and, and you know, doing some more strategic thinking. Um, and then there's this hybrid, right, um, which is the IC plus manager, which is where I'm at. Um, so I manage people, but I also do a lot of I really love getting into the guts of research. So and I and I am not willing to ever sacrifice that. So uh, mm. I do both. Yeah, cool. Well, that's cool. Nice. Awesome, Courtney. Well, I have one final two part question for you. And the fact is, 98 percent of our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport right when they graduate from Cal. And then that other two percent percent is going to do a professional sport and then ultimately go in something that's a non-sport professional career. And we've heard from this graduating group and these people playing these non-sports careers later, that this transition is really difficult. It's an identity crisis. And people describe this feeling being untethered, uncertain of who they're going to become and how life's going to unfold. So my questions for you is, you seem like a really confident person. You just exude confidence. Has that (laughs) always been the case? And then two, we're wondering if you right now could have a conversation with your 22-year-old self, what advice or guidance would you give? And what would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Lisa, have I always been a confident person? Yes. The most confident (laughs) ever. (laughs) Most, maybe too much. No. Okay. Here's what I'll, here's what I'll say about that. I think, um, so being from, being from a biracial family, I never sort of felt like I belonged anywhere. Like I experienced a lot of racism when I was growing up from the black community and also from the white community. And, um, it oftentimes made me feel really powerless. And I realized the only way to kind of combat that power, that powerlessness was to put on a facade of confidence. So what you see is a lot of individual work building myself up to be very confident. Um, but internally it's not the case, right? I still suffer from imposter syndrome. I oftentimes think like, Oh, my work's not good enough. Am I ever going to like get promoted? You know, all of, all of these things are, are real thoughts that, that race through my head. Um, but there is something valuable in sort of faking it until you make it. And so, um, if you could do the work to actually be confident and and do that, like everybody should be doing that. But, um, I think for me, um, I've had to kind of develop almost like a different person to, to like be outward facing and to do the work that I do with a level of confidence that, delivers the right level of impact. So I'll just say, yes, I might've always seemed confident, but, um, inside I, I'm not so much. Um, Hey, before you answer part B, can I make it aside? Uh, I want to encourage everybody uh, who was watching this to, I I watched the, uh, uh, the panel on uh, racism and discrimination that uh, women's soccer did. Mm -hmm. One of the most compelling parts of that, uh, discussion was when you were talking about, well, there's a number of you talking about racism as trauma. And I remember you giving this anecdote anecdote where you were talking about when you had experienced racism and how your, your response as an athlete was to push it down, like to sort of like Mm -hmm. not acknowledge it and just, you know, keep, keep on like you do, you know, like in a game, like you keep trucking, like you get up and you keep moving, but that, you're still experiencing, you know, you're, you're like dealing with that now. Like it's, it's like that, that didn't go away. So I, I mean, to me, that was, I don't know if that's 
helped your confidence or if it, at the time it was, uh, you know, it was deleterious to the confidence, but it was, I mean, that was like so poignant. Can you, can you talk about this just for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, your natural reaction to dealing with something that's traumatic, like racism is to push it down. Right. Um, there's a lot of research to suggest that when people acknowledge or confront racism, especially if they're the victims of racism, they're often penalized, right? There, there are social consequences to calling out racist behavior. Um, and so to me, like it just created this mentality that I just need to be complacent, right? This isn't happening. Let me just ignore this. Let me just get through the day. And what that cumulative suppression that we now know, what happens is that has a delirious, like deleterious consequences on mental and physical health. Um, we looked at things like how racism over the course of lifetime creates what they call weathering, right? So your daily sort of like every time that you experience like racism, whether that's implicit or explicit, and mind you, most of the time we're talking about implicit stuff, which happens to be the worst. Um, that over time just causes wear and tear on your mental and physical health. Um, we, I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, why am I getting stomach ulcers all the time? Why am I so sick? Like, why, why did that just happen? And then the, for the rest of the day, I can't think. I'm just cognitively depleted, right? Um, so the science now proves that that, that is real. And once, once we started uncovering more, um, it was, it allowed me to, to actually cope with this in a way that's not just suppression oriented. That was acknowledging what happened, acknowledging that I didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves that. Um, and, and really sort of like facing it, um, and not letting those, those experiences dominate who I want to be and who I am. And that took a lot of time. And so for people who are already, who are in that space, um, especially like newly graduating and a lot of the racial injustice that happened this year is fresh. Racism has been happening for a really long time, but now we just have cameras to videotape it at every angle. And so it's hard. Um, just know that you're not alone. And this, this, takes work, but highly recommend you talk to, you know, someone, whether that's a professional or someone that you trust, because suppressing that um, creates a lot of problems and you, you don't deserve to be subjected to that. Um, so yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate nice. that. Um, and then to, to tie this back to part two, if you, yeah. you know, your, your current, you know, 30 something self wanted to have a <laughs> chit chat with your, you know, your 22 year old self as you're graduating and contemplating how the world's going to unfold and so forth. What, what would you, uh, any, any guidance or advice that you would pass along? Yeah. Yeah. I think I would say like, relax, you know, um, I was so competitive and so wound up in soccer and call, like it was, it was just, um, I didn't have a time to sort of reflect. Um, but also like when you're that competitive, you lose out on a lot of like the fun that is being a student athlete at Cal. Um, so, you know, if you find yourself, you know, overstressing about games or people or whatever that might be just like, this is supposed to be fun. It's, it's, a, a sport that you love. And if you get sort of tied up in, um, you know, taking it too seriously, I think that you miss out on an opportunity to really uh, just 
have a really great time. Um, you know, it's, it's sports. It's not too serious. It's not supposed to be super, like, it's of course competitive, but like, it, it can't be too serious. Um, so yeah, I would have told myself to like, you know, relax and maybe just, you know, not take in 40 classes at once. (laughs) (laughs) Although I have no regrets about it, but maybe I would have spread that out over the course of five years instead of trying to double major in four. Um, But yeah, I mean, um, I think times are really different now for our student athletes. I'm, I'm not sure if they're returning actually to the university next year. I think a lot of that is, is to be determined. So, um, you know, the moments that you do get to connect with your teammates, um, you know, even if it's virtual, really try to have fun with them. Um, and yeah, just, I would have told myself to do that more often. Cause well, life Courtney, is really serious when you're older and it's not, it's not as fun. So <laughs> just have fun now while you can, and you don't have responsibilities. <laughs> Courtney, just to wrap us up here, I just want to say you are amazing. Um, what you're doing is absolutely incredible. It is inspiring and it's changing the world. Um, it makes me proud to call myself a fellow golden bear. I'm sure it does for everybody else. You've been so generous with your time today. You've given us so much value. Um, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Go bears. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so, yeah, y'all are the best. What incredible insights from Courtney Heldreth. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were the purpose-based motivation that drives Courtney to identify the risk and opportunities in AI, how the qualities she developed as an athlete in multitasking, leadership, grit, and a competitive drive have helped her in her career, and her perspective on how racism affects mental and physical health. Her wisdom, reflections, and experiences informed and moved me. I hope you got the same out of it too. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. I appreciate our team who works very hard week in and week out on this podcast. Our liaison directors for each sport at Cal who co-host the shows. Our production team behind today's episodes, audio, video engineering, graphics, and so forth along with the Big C Society president, Joe Roof, who has been pivotal in getting the society where it is today with his hard work and expertise. I appreciate you all. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Courtney. I'll see you in two weeks on our next amazing episode, Thank you for listening and go bears.